Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine, and on today's show, we meet a newly minted Central Valley City Councilwoman who won her seat as a teenager. I still crack up when I get letters in my inbox here at City Hall, and it says, the Honorable Jewel Hurtado. I just laugh. And we also head to Santa Maria to learn how a one-armed butcher may have invented its famous tri-tip. A young artist from Los Angeles tells us how Persian New Year helps her stay connected to a place she may never get to visit. Plus, we remember the godfather of surf rock. I just don't play with my fingers. I play from my guts inside when I squat down low and get into the people with the music. I'm Sasha Coca, and it's the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Last fall, voters across the country and here in California elected a record number of women to office, and we followed some of their campaigns for a series we called The Long Run. In Fresno County, Jewel Hurtado is settling into her new role as a city council member in Kingsburg. She's only 20 years old. She's also a new mom, a college student, and she holds down a part-time job. The California Report's Mary Franklin Harvin spent one very long day with her to see how she's balancing it all. I told Jewel I wanted a window into every aspect of her life, so she asked me to meet up with her at a mall in Fresno, about 30 minutes from Kingsburg. I find her between the Build-A-Bear and the Wetzel's Pretzels. So we are in front of Victoria's Secret, which is my part-time job on the weekends. And it works out very well with council because during the week I get to do all my council stuff. She also says she gets recognized in the store sometimes. I was working and a neighbor who lives a couple houses down from me said, I never got to talk to you, but I voted for you. Thank you so much for running. I'm so excited to see this representation on council. Also, can you size me? Our next stop, Fresno State, where she has a couple of appointments. They're going with Dad. Well, you guys are coming, but... Jewel has her fiancé, Anthony, and their son, Anthony III, in tow. The baby's about to turn one, and he's still nursing, so he needs to be with her all day. His dad's here to wrangle him during Jewel's meetings. First, we meet up with Kingsburg's Mayor Michelle Roman at the library. Mayor Roman is a mentor to Jewel. She appointed her as a youth commissioner for Kingsburg's Community Services Commission. And Jewel now helps oversee that commission as a council member. I get asked about Jewel, you know, how do you feel about having a 20-year-old on your city council? I'm all, I think it's great, you know, because she's inspiring that next generation. After meeting with Mayor Roman, we pack up and head to Jewel's next appointment. She holds the baby while Dad pushes the stroller beside us. Jewel, do you want me to take it? 
Jewel's been invited to talk with a class of social work students. My name is Jewel Hurtado, councilwoman from Keensburg. It's the Swedish village. It's funny to see me, Jewel Brown, city council in a Swedish village, but that's about representation, and that is why I ran. Kingsburg was settled by Swedish immigrants, and you can see their influence all over the city. The water tower is shaped like a giant Swedish coffee pot. Today, around a third of Kingsburg's residents identify as Latinx. Hurtado says as a Latina city council member, she hopes her presence will help bring the community together. If they're seeing things that they want to see a change or they want their voice to be heard, I'm that voice. Hurtado's skeptics have questioned her credentials because of her age, but politics and community organizing run in her blood. Her mother works for Assemblymember Anna Caballero, and her grandmother, Abby, and her late grandfather organized with Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers Union. After Fresno State, we head south to Kingsburg, so Jewel can take a break at home before an evening commission meeting. She and her fiancé and her baby all live with Abby. And Abby was actually considering running for office herself when she found out about her granddaughter's ambitions. I had thought, maybe the day I retire, I'm going to run for city council. And then she says, Nani, I'm going to be running for city council. And I go, well, I guess there goes my idea out the window. Yes, Mija, yes. We need young people out there. <laughs> I was so happy. So we can do the front room. We can do the pub table. What do you want to do? Next, we meet up with Stan Ruiz. He was a big supporter of Jules, and he's a diehard Republican. He says he got flack when he put Jules' sign in his front yard because she ran as a Democrat. But he also thinks her critics had other concerns. Number one, she's 19. Jewel was 19 when she was campaigning. Number two, she's Hispanic, just like me. And there was a lot of doubters on her. When Jewel came here one day with her, with her baby and her fiancé and started talking to me, I loved everything she said. You know, and there's a lot of us very proud of her. We book it to our last stop, the Community Services Commission. I'm here right on time. The commission's discussion could be a scene out of the TV show Parks and Rec. They talk about decorating fire hydrants for a new dog park and a feral cat herding effort. After the meeting, Jewel and I sit down to chat. She says what's most important to her is staying accessible to her constituents. I still crack up when I get letters in my inbox here at City Hall and it says the Honorable Jewel Hurtado. I just laugh. In her speech at Fresno State, Jewel focused on diversity, but also another big driver behind her political ambition, probably the biggest, her son. A few days before the election, little Anthony was diagnosed with tuberous sclerosis. It's a rare multi-system disorder that causes tumors in different parts of the body. Anthony's are in his brain. Now he has monthly MRIs and EEG brain scans and weekly home visits from medical staff. So if you can imagine, it was so difficult to be dealing with this new diagnosis. I knew that my son was not okay throughout my campaign. But Jules says he's doing much better now that they know what's going on and they're taking the right precautions. She doesn't seem overwhelmed by the high-stakes issues she's navigating in her life right now. They're fueling her drive. This fight was not won very easily. Took a village and we did it. And I'm still tired. <laughs> but I'm young, so they always tell me you have a lot of energy so you can do it. If anybody can do it, it's you. Now that she's in office and a new mom, this 20-year-old college student sees the future through her young son's eyes. And she says people her age shouldn't wait for permission to take action. For The California Report, I'm Mary Franklin Harvin in Kingsburg.
beginning of spring marks the start of Noruz, or Persian New Year, which falls on the spring equinox. Throughout Iran and its diaspora, people celebrate through rituals that symbolize rebirth and renewal. One of the most common Noruz traditions is an altar called a Hafzin table, like the one Nilu Farhad has at her home in Palo Alto. There are seven special items we put on. One is sabze, which means the new greens. And in this case, I have a sprouted lentil, serke, which is vinegar. It symbolizes age and maturity. People also put out garlic for good health, dried fruit for love, and sumac for the sunrise of the coming day. They might even add their own little touches, like a hyacinth to signify the turning of the seasons. It's a happy time. It's the time you're coming from the darkness of the winter and the cold of the winter to the spring. This year also marks the 40th anniversary of the Iranian Revolution, when millions of people fled in search of a new life all over the world. Today, Noruz is a secular way for Iranians from all faiths to stay connected to their homeland. But what about those Iranian-Americans who've never been to Iran? People like 26-year-old Candice Navi, an artist from Los Angeles who relies on Persian traditions like Noruz to feel closer to her family's heritage. She brings us this essay. I was born in Los Angeles, but the memory of Iran invokes a potent nostalgia for my parents and older relatives. They all completely uprooted themselves to escape religious persecution during the revolution. The Iran of today doesn't align with my family's stories about the Iran of 40 years ago. Still, I dream of visiting, but I may never be able to experience Iran for myself. Beyond the geopolitical complications, being a Jewish woman and an artist makes a visit especially risky. So I live with the possibility that I may never go to Iran. I wish I could see where my parents grew up in Tehran, where all our customs, food, language, and the indescribable ways of our being originated. I've only recently begun engaging with Iranian culture in hopes of partially reversing my assimilation. My parents have proudly championed their desire to adapt in order to survive here as immigrants. I saw this throughout my upbringing here in L.A. My first name has no relation to my heritage. I have a Southern California accent and a laid-back demeanor to match. I went to schools where there were just a handful of Persian students. Even though there are a lot of Iranian Jews in L.A., the coexistence of these two identities confuses people who are only familiar with contemporary politics in the Middle East. Perhaps they're not aware of the thousands of years Jews have been in the region. For most of my life, I have always felt closer to Judaism than to my Iranian heritage, and my connection to Iran was limited to food and conversational Farsi. But after college, I asked my parents to exclusively speak to me in Farsi. I've even been studying how to read and write. I love living in LA because Persian culture is so accessible, so embedded in the city's landscape. I now seek out the work of Iranian artists throughout Los Angeles. I read books by Persian authors and poets, listen to cheesy Persian party music, and watch Iranian movies at the Indie Theater a few blocks from where I grew up. And yet, my memories are peppered with moments I was forced to realize I was different. I remember elementary school classmates making fun of my lunches, confusing the dill on my rice for ants. I remember strangers questioning if I was from Los Angeles, asking, no, where are you really from? 
When I finally met more Iranians in college, they all jokingly referred to me as whitewashed. This is the struggle of a first-generation American, simultaneously belonging and not belonging. Though I may never see Iran for myself, I've spent my adult life reclaiming my heritage, grasping for my family's history, language, religion, and culture before it fades into the American abyss. During Noru's and throughout the year, I want my heritage to be something I lovingly and proudly carry with me. That reflection comes to us from Candice Navi. She's a graphic design MFA student at CalArts, where her work often explores her Middle Eastern heritage. California surfers and musicians alike are mourning the death of the godfather of surf rock, Dick Dale, who passed away March 16th at the age of 81. With his blistering reverb-heavy style, Dale basically created a new genre of music in the early 1960s. Unlike most of the Beach Boys, Dale really was a surfer. He took up the sport after his family moved from Boston to Southern California in 1954. Reporter Stephen Cuevas has covered Dick Dale over the years here on the California Report magazine. And this week, as a remembrance, we're going to feature an excerpt from Stephen's very first profile of the musician from back in 2002. Let's go Released only two months before the Beach Boys' debut single, Surfin', Dick Dale's 1961 single, Let's Go Trippin', is now considered the very first surf music record. Dale was channeling his love of surfing through his guitar, and teenage audiences flipped over his propulsive instrumentals, which seemed to drag listeners through the pipeline of a massive wave. In his quest for a louder, fatter sound, Dale started using thicker guitar strings, and a vocal reverb unit, which when plugged into his Stratocaster, added a rumbling echo to the music. To add to the assault, legendary guitar and amplifier designer Leo Fender created a 100-watt amp that could withstand Dale's punishing guitar playing. And I plugged the Strat into it with my 60-gauge strings on it. And as Guitar Player magazine quoted, Dick Dale became the father of heavy metal. And while when I hit a 60-gauge string, it was heavy. Dale would introduce his new, heavier sound on his third single, a cover of an obscure Egyptian folk song that he heard his father and uncle sing when he was growing up in Boston. And when it's sung, it's Wayno Habibi, Wayno Habibi, Fain, where are you, my sweetheart? Habibi is sweetheart. So that's th- that flavor. And I saw that as a child. And when I started to play Muslu, of course, I jazzed it up. So every, every person, then, what is he doing? You know, because I wanted to make it big and fat. Nobody played loud in those days. Nobody had a reason to play loud. They played very eloquently. Until I came along and started treating the guitar like a, a drum. So I played very percussive. Ticka, 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 He was invited to play on The Ed Sullivan Show, and his movie star good looks earned him roles in most of the Annette Finicello, Frankie Avalon, Beach Party movies. 
Surf music became a national craze, and Dick Dale was its Pied Piper. But surf music's moment in the sun was waning. By 1964, it was swamped by Motown and the British Invasion. And groups that once opened for Dale, like Jan and Dean and the Beach Boys, were muscling him off the charts and off the radio. Dale's final album of the era came out that summer. It would be 30 years until there was another. Dale staged a triumphant comeback in 1993 with the release of a new album, Tribal Thunder. Then came the biggest boost of his 40-year career. 30 years after its release, the song Miserloo re-emerged a hit as the theme song to the 1994 Quentin Tarantino film Pulp Fiction. Everybody be cool, this is a robbery! And the upstairs move! And I'll execute every last one of you! He said Miserloo was a masterpiece, and he says it's like the good, bad, and the ugly. And he said, I would like to uh, get your permission to use it so that I can create a masterpiece of a movie to complement the masterpiece of your song. The success of the Pulp Fiction soundtrack catapulted Dale back into the spotlight. And these days, it's pretty hard to not hear his music. On the radio, at sporting events, and on television. Do you know that I can change your life dramatically? On this day, in his hotel in San Francisco, Dale is nursing a cold. Nonetheless, he carries this conversation past the two-hour mark. Tonight's performance is at Slim's, the venue in which Dale staged his comeback in 1993. He says he still loves to play live, but even after years of surfing and karate, his uncompromising performances have begun to take their toll. I just don't play with my fingers, I play from my guts inside. When I squat down low and get into the people with the music, I play with in here, all the way from my toes. Because being in the martial arts, in the world of karate, or we are taught everything you do. Your team works. That's guitarist Dick Dale, who was interviewed by Stephen Cuevas back in 2002. Dale died recently at the age of 81. Memphis has got ribs. Texas has got brisket. What is California's signature style of barbecue? Well, as part of our Golden State Plate series, looking at the origin stories behind some of California's iconic drinks and dishes, Diane Bach is going to tell us about a Central Coast delicacy that was once considered scrap meat. Every weekend, an all-ages crowd, friends, families, and bikers gather at the Cold Spring Tavern. It's a stagecoach stop tucked into a scenic canyon just north of Santa Barbara. Look at that beef. Best sandwiches ever. Fragrant wood smoke rises from open pit barbecues, and the mouth-watering smell of grilled meat fills the air. We do a sandwich here. It's a tri-tip cut. We've been doing it since roughly about 1972. That's barbecue chef Tom Perez. His sandwich is a carnivore's dream. Succulent tri-tip grilled to a perfect medium rare, piled high on a toasted French roll. The tri-tip aficionado do not like barbecue sauce anywhere near their tri-tip. Chicken, ribs, yes. Tri-tip, you gotta get some dirty looks. According to Perez, when it comes to tri-tip, there are rules. First, the seasonings. Keep them simple. Salt, black pepper, and garlic salt. Second, 
cook the meat over fire, but not just any fire, it should be fueled by local red oak. And finally, you serve it with the approved sides, salsa, grilled French bread, tossed green salad, and locally grown pinquito beans, which are similar to pintos. Tri-tip has been around since the 1950s. Before that, it was considered scrap and usually ground into hamburger. Depends on who you talk to, depends on where it started, depends on who started it. Everyone uh, tends to uh, claim that it was their idea. I've heard a couple different ones. And it started in a grocery store in Santa Maria. According to local lore, it all began with one-armed butcher, Bob Schutz. Schutz worked at Safeway, and supposedly, he was the first to throw this triangular cut on the grill and christen it tri-tip. It's called Santa Maria Barbecue for a reason, so I headed there. It's a town with a rich ranching history, where the Chamber of Commerce has trademarked their namesake menu. My name is Cindy Ranzig, and I'm the curator here at the Historical Society in Santa Maria. I mean, if you're talking about Santa Maria-style barbecue, we're not talking about tri-tip. Specifically, we're really talking about top block. Wait a minute, what? I've lived around here for 30 years, and I've never heard of top block. What is it? I could show you, easier than tell you. Rancic points to a diagram of beef cuts, part of the museum's barbecue exhibit. Okay, this part right here you can see is labeled top block. It's on the top shoulder of the, of the cow. It's a more expensive cut of meat. It's also an enormous cut of meat. Turns out top block is a giant cut of sirloin. Museum docent Phil Lawyer is showing me some vintage photos. There are generations of men sporting long aprons and wielding metal spears studded with hunks of meat. Red oak, willow sticks, bunch of meat. There it is over the fire. And here's, uh, for example, the Shrine Barbecue in September of 1930. You can see how many tables they've got set up. It's like the whole community was going to this one. The oldest photos here date back more than 100 years. But the true legacy goes back even further. Well, actually, this type of cooking began in the Spanish tradition when we had the Spanish rancheros and they had the huge cattle drives. And it was in the days when the rancheros were great hosts and would have everybody in the valley come to one of the ranchos and they just do up a whole bunch of meat and have a party all night, dancing and eating. And today, barbecue continues to bind this community together. From fundraisers to uh, having just people come over your house and barbecuing for dinner. Every other neighbor here in this town will have a barbecue pit in their backyard. <laughs> That's just the way it is. John Moretti manages the Santa Maria Elks Lodge, where every Friday, hundreds gather for cook-your-own night. We take it for granted. We think it's simple, because that's what we're born to do around here. We, we grew up with it, I should say. And so that's what we're used to. And you get a good beef, aged beef, and good mix, and good coals. Comes out good every time. Pretty simple. <laughs> so, whether you prefer tri-tip or top sirloin, either way, it's Santa Maria barbecue. Just remember to hold the sauce. For the California Report, I'm Diane Bach in Santa Maria. 
And now it's time for our series, Letter to My California Dreamer. We've been asking you, our listeners, to write a letter to the person in your family who first came to the Golden State with a dream. This week's letter comes from listener Wendy Earle, and she wrote it to herself. Wendy remembers Palo Alto in the 1970s, back before it became Silicon Valley, back when it offered refuge to hippies and misfits. Dear Wendy, when you left your wealthy button-down community on the coast of Fairfield County, Connecticut, a handyman employed by your family wondered aloud, why do you want to go to California? They see birds there. Knowing he meant that people in California were not quite right in the head, he didn't know what to say. He blurted out, I think that's why I'm going. You packed your Volkswagen square back with your pared-down possessions and those of your four-year-old son. You frolicked across the country with an old friend who took time off from college to escort you. Among other adventures, you stopped to explore the Grand Canyon, and you still have emblazoned in your memory the migrating tarantulas skittering across the mountain road as you entered the Golden State. You landed in Palo Alto at the home of your childhood friend, Greta. In those days, Silicon Valley was headquarters to only a few microchip makers, and the founders of Google were toddlers. Palo Alto was affordable then, and it had a thriving counterculture in which you immediately felt at home. Home. You finally discovered a world where you belonged. You were on the lookout for birds, and thankfully there were many. Hippies, seekers of truth, street preachers, and alternative medicine practitioners abounded in Palo Alto back in those days. You enrolled your son in an alternative school called Rivendell, where you met many like-minded parents. And you screeched with delight when you discovered that the now-closed co-op market sold sprouts in the produce section. Over the years, your life became more complicated as you entered the corporate world and bought your first home, a funky house with no foundation in the Barron Park neighborhood of Palo Alto. In those days, the houses in Barron Park were modest, and there were no sidewalks. Eventually, you fled the corporate world, moved to San Francisco, and established a small book production company. You looked for employees who had a propensity for bird watching and who wanted to have fun while working. Now you are a woman in your later years, and your son is a social justice lawyer. You no longer live in California, in part because the tech bros have driven most of the birds away. But you return to California often, hoping that the most colorful birds are still there, waiting for a chance to reveal themselves to nascent California dreamers. Peace and love, Wendy. That was listener Wendy Earle's letter to herself. We'd love to hear your letter to your family's original California dreamer. We've got an easy form on our website where you can tell us your story, californiareport.org.
And that's the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. You can subscribe to our podcast. Just look for the bear wearing earbuds. Our director is Susie Racho. Our technical producer is Seal Muller. And we had additional engineering this week from Katie McMurrin. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Our online producer is David Marks. And our intern is Asala Sanapur. The California Report's editorial team also includes Peter Arcuni, Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine, your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from the James Irvine Foundation. Accepting nominations now for the 2020 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvine.org. College Futures Foundation, more graduates for a thriving California. Learn more at collegefutures.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.